I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radials, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. It's the Lifers Podcast with Scott Lucas, Gabe Rodriguez, and Ben Riser. And now, here's Scott, Gabe, and Ben. Gabe, look at you. You're, you're, you're all set up. I mean, you are uh, you're a podcaster. There's nothing you can do about it now. I'm, I'm the Joe Rogan. It's over. It's happened. <laughs> so I, I get the feeling you don't like Joe Rogan, though. Why Joe Rogan? I don't know. He's the only podcaster I actually can see. No, You know what? I, I, like, news, I like news radio a lot. He was on news radio. And I, I like everybody that was on that show, no matter what they do and no matter how lame they become. I, I didn't know that so. Joe Rogan was on. Joe Rogan gets a pass from me. Now, I didn't know he was on that show. I guess I never saw news radio. News radio? Oh, yeah. Great show. Great show. Dave Foley was on it. Uh, Andy Dick. Uh, Phil Hartman, who I think dead. is one of the funniest people Still, of all time. Even in his grave. Uh, totally dead. Like Still dead. I think his wife had had enough I mean, imagine living with Phil Hartman and, you know, every t- and, and you're a cokehead on top of that, you know, so you're paranoid and every time you're like, hey, do you love me? And he's like, of course I do, baby. You know, after a long time of that, you'd probably snap and you, you know. Did she get convicted? You know what I mean? Did she kill him? She killed herself, too. Okay. <laughs> she didn't, she didn't she get killed convicted. herself. Okay. I don't think they convict dead people. Do they? No. Once you're dead, they don't. It's just one of the many failures of our system. Yeah, it's like a it's like a branding they should put on them and, and put on their headstone. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, this is really a podcast. Anyway, it, it it looks good, Gabe. You you look like you know what you're doing over there. Uh, thanks. I I appreciate the sentiment. Uh, I didn't pick it out myself. I think you guys picked out this thing. The windscreen is supposed to make me sound better. Who knows? I think I sound okay in my headphones, but 
Let's hear you say, please bring pizza pronto. Is that, are, shouldn't I say Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers? Isn't that the same kind of deal? If you could say it, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, you sound a lot less plosive. You, you, it, that is that a word? That windscreen is doing a nice job for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's Plosive. Plosive. As opposed to implosive and explosive? His, Plosive. His windscreen is always on my mind. You know that commercial, right? I don't actually know if I'm using that word correctly. Plosives? Oh, Jesus, I've got a fan going. He's got a fan in the house. Podcast fan. Is last week's episode? Yeah. People like. Yeah. I, I, I like that one. Um, we, we, we fucked up. Uh, I, it's, the show isn't called Hot Wings. The show is called Hot Ones. Oh, okay. Did, did no one bring no. that up? Did somebody bring it up with you? Did the guy, <laughs> did the guy get in touch? No. <laughs> no, no, no. That, it didn't uh-huh. work. I did not. I was not able to neg him into putting me on his show. But you were trying to find it and couldn't find it because I'd given you the wrong name. No, I was listening to oh. it and and I said, "Oh, that's not right." And I, I almost feel like as we were saying it, I knew it wasn't right, and I was going to correct us at some point. And then yeah. I forgot. No, you're right. And every time I heard the show while I was editing, I was like, "That's not the." Na-. I, I had the same thought. I was like, "That's not the name of the show." But I never bothered to like figure out what it what it what it is. So, Gabe. Uh, yes. What do you got behind you tonight? I got two really good, uh, what do you call them, initial albums, first albums from <clears throat> Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden, the, the the self-titled album, and the Suicidal Tendencies uh, self-titled album. I don't know why they're both self-titled. I just picked them out. But they're uh, classic records that, uh, for some reason, uh, just were on my mind. How many How many albums awesome. do you think you have, vinyl? Not as many as I used to have. I, I lost some and got rid of some, but I, I probably got maybe 150, 200 vinyl records. Not vinyls, vinyl records. Oh, no, don't say that. Yeah, that's not really that no, many. No, it's not that many. I kind of stopped. Really not. Did you sell a lot? No, I, I really stopped buying vinyl maybe like, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago because it wasn't really available, and I wasn't buying a lot of new music. I'm not, I'm not hip to what's out there new. So, you know, most yeah, of my but- stuff's going to be from the 80s and 90s. But I stopped buying vinyl probably 20 years yeah. ago, and I probably got like 800 records without trying. Okay, if you count my 12 inches, maybe that's 200. But if you count my 7 inches as well, I probably have another 200, okay? So how about wait, that? Wait, 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 wait. When you say 12 inches, are you talking about like LPs, singles or? Oh, LPs. LPs. 12-inch yeah. vinyl. Okay. LPs. But, but only, I, you know, if you, that sounds like not a lot. But you say, wait, you have more 45s than you have um, albums? No, I probably have just as many. I probably have just as many seven inches. I call them seven inches. You call them 45s. It's the same thing, but. Yeah. But uh, I would never call an album a 12 inch because a 12 inch, to me, growing up in the 80s and 70s, a 12 inch was like a 12 inch single. 12 inch was like a dance remix of Born in the USA, which came up last week. Right. We would only call it 12 inch because we're, we've been talking to some pressing plants lately. I guess so. Uh, Okay. Cut that out. Does local H no? Cut. This is the best part. All but does local H up. have any ten-inch records? Uh, we do. The Innocence uh, single, yes, which includes a, the video as record. well. A download of the video. Yes, 
that, that yes, someone was in. Michael. Did either of you That's in right. the early days of CDs get one of those, getting those mini CDs? They used to make these CD singles. I have like an Elvis Costello like CD single and a Jesus and Mary Chain CD single. They're tiny. They're like, they look like they're little toys. I don't think so. It's like a mini CD. I, I have a record from the Crypt mini CD and you put it in and it almost looks like it wants to fall through, but it doesn't. It sits right in the bottom and you can yeah. still play it. Yeah. Some of them won't play it. No. Well, I, I wanted to talk about that uh, Mark Lanigan story that I sort of told a little bit uh, on the, our last episode with um, John, with John and Yellow. Okay. Well, I mean, I feel kind of like an asshole to when we're interviewing people and I start telling a story of my own and sort of, you know, I, sometimes I hate that when I'm hearing people do that and they start and it's like, listen, we came here to listen to stories about John, not stories about you, but it is a great story. And it's one of like the best shows I've ever seen. So I want, before Mike gets here, I want to at least get this down. Um, so we had played a show at Double Door, Gabe, and I don't remember what show it was or why we did that. Uh, and as soon as it was over, I hopped in a cab and went across town to Metro to see Screaming Trees. And I think they might have been on the Dirt Tour. Um, this is when Josh from Queens of the Stone Age and Caius had started playing with them. And I didn't know Josh. So I was like, who the fuck is that guy on stage? Is that... You know, a roadie or something like that. Uh, so they're playing, and and it's it's great, you know. And somebody throws a beer up in the air, and it goes flipping around, and the beer flies into Mark Lanigan's face, and he sits there for a second, like, okay, and then he's like, nah, nah I, I can't do this, and he turns around and he goes to the drummer. I think it was Barrett Martin, and and he goes, stop, stop, stop. Then he turns around and he picks up the mic and he goes, uh, I don't know which one of you assholes thought that I would like a beer in my face, but I do not. I do not like a beer in my face. So who was it? Was it you? <laughs> was it you? And he's going around the entire room like, who was it? Who did this to me? Was it you? And then he points at this guy in front of him who he thinks this was the guy. And he goes, or was it you, tough guy? <laughs> and he goes, I don't give a fuck who it was. Next beer I get in my face, me and my boys are in the pit kicking your ass. And then he goes, turns around, he goes, go. And they go right back into the song <laughs> where they stopped. And I was like, oh, my God. It was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. I mean, it was, I mean, you know, you, you could have a problem with it, but, but no. it was awesome. And then afterwards, went backstage to meet him. And then that's when, and he was very nice. He was talking to a friend of his and I was so excited. And uh, I was like, hi, Mark, I'm, I'm Scott. Um, oh, there goes the train. I'm Scott and, uh, you know. I think you're great. He's like, what's your name? And I said, Scott. He goes, oh, nice to meet you, Scott. And then, and then he turned away because, you know, that was it. That was all I was getting. And I stood there for a second. And then a friend I was with kind of nudged me and said, you know, we should go. Because I knew the next minute he was going to turn around and go, what? What the fuck do you want? And, I mean, he was in a fighting mood that night. But it was a great show. One of the great asshole bits I ever saw. 
It's terrific. Yeah, that was the, the my question was you you last week when you told the story you said I you know if I'd stayed there another thirty seconds I was going to die and I wasn't sure what I didn't catch the dynamic as to why you were sure you were about to take a beating or whatever. Oh no no yeah no I, it was kind it was a kind of thing where that was enough. It was like I said hi to you. I was polite to you. That's all you deserve. And he was right. That it that is all I deserve. He was chatting somebody up and you know i was that, that was all i that was all he I'm needed i'm the kind of me. guy where anytime i've been backstage at somebody else's show all i'm doing is looking to see what can i eat what can i drink in this in this green <laughs> i somehow i made my way backstage and i was like i was i was a pretty young kid i must have been in high school at the at the oldest and the Ramones played at Brooklyn College, which was only a couple blocks from my house. And my friend Steve Ment somehow knew their manager and got us backstage uh-huh. at this Brooklyn College Ramones show. And I was I just remember being in the Ramones dressing room after the show and really just be focused on whatever the fucking buffet was there. And like I didn't really care about it. I knew I, I was too shy to I wasn't gonna say hi to Joey or anybody like that, but they were all there. <laughs> um the Ramones are there, and you're looking yeah, for bananas. No, not bananas, like a bagel or something. Oh, okay. fuck a banana! Well, there's there's always bananas, yeah. and there's uh, you know vegetable trays, the most useless thing backstage. Who wants who wants gross? What's plain the carrots? one thing you you put in your rider that you're like, I really this is something I really need backstage. Whiskey? What's something you wouldn't want to do without? Oh, whiskey. Whiskey and water. Like, you know, if we're playing someplace that is having problems or is just going to give us cash, um, we're just like, just make sure there's whiskey and water and we can get through the show. Um, I mean, honestly, uh, our rider has gotten less and less and we've taken more and more cash. Uh, so, you know, because most of it is like deli trays and shit like that that, we don't really want. Right. I'm not going to eat it. I'll get indigestion. Right. All that kind of crap. Right. Hey, be- before Michael Shannon comes on, is it Michael or Mike? What do you, what do you call him? Uh, I call him Michael. He says Mike. Okay. Um, some people call him Mike. You can call him Michael. All right. I, I just I wanted to clear something up that also also came up on a previous podcast, and that was the who called me a poser back in the day <laughs> because I I, I, I actually. Reached out to the Fuck person. Yeah, All I right. reached out to the person, and and he asked me, "Who was it that called you a poser?" And I said, "You don't remember? It was you." And he's like, "No, I don't remember this." And I was like, "Well, yeah, it happened, and we didn't talk for a couple of months. It was, it was Matt Garcia, oh, <laughs> the old bass player from Local H. I mean, we got over it. It's no big deal. But uh, you oh, know. was it was it fighting words? Was it no? Was it was it just like. All right, like, poser, and he just he, he called me the word, and I'm like, okay, whatever. And we didn't talk for a couple months. I think it was between school years, you know. Wow, and then, that doesn't seem that doesn't seem like Matt. <laughs> but um, but did you figure out what the band patch that you had on your jacket that was? No, I don't remember the patch. I mean, it might have been some death metal band that was oh. kind of hip and new, and I I just found the patch and got it. I, I don't know, but that's who it was. He saw right through you. Yeah, but you don't call out, you know, your your homeboy, your buddy, and say, you know, you just let it go. Sometimes you just say, okay, whatever. But I, I don't remember. I don't remember who the band was. Did you have access to, uh, did you guys have a shopping mall near you where there was one of those stores, like Spencer's Gifts, 
or something that sort of yeah. had a head shop in the back, but but yeah. but they also had like a like a big bowl full of like rock pins that you could buy. Um, we had a couple. Some of them a couple were cool like and that. square, and some of them were really small. I remember, and I don't even know if this was a real band, but I found this Sex Beatles uh, pin that was like you know, in Sex Pistols like um, lettering, but it was the Sex Beatles, and I was like, oh, this is the greatest fucking thing ever, and I. I, I don't I never knew if it was an actual band or not or just something funny. That can't be a band. That's got to be somebody's idea of a joke, right? I guess, but I loved it. But I probably would have been but if it had been a band, I would have been called a poser because I didn't know anything about them. I just was like this is this is funny to me as a 13 year old. Sex Beatles. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> not bad. That was the height of of rock humor back in the day. So, Gabe, I see people are are asking uh, they're 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 taking guesses on what kind of microphone you have on the on the Facebook. I guess they, think they are, a, but they think it's a Shure SM58, and I'm not going to say what it is on this, but it's not it's not right. It's not even no, sure. it's not sure. It's not yeah. sure. I can't. We can't afford that stuff. We're not highfalutin like some of those other podcasters. I think the Shure SM58 it might even be the same price as this or cheaper. Really? This was, this was the highest mic. No, but it was the highest rated one that yeah. was spe- specific for podcasting. And it just happened to be a, a nice price too. Oh, came came with the windscreen and the whole, yeah. you know, thing you can move it around and stuff. I'm not gonna move it because I might. I don't know if I have it on good enough, but yeah. But a Shure SM58 is only like a hundred bucks, I think. Isn't that like and a standard regular microphone though for for musicians? It is, but I think this is too. I don't know if this was the best one. I don't know if this was the best podcasting mic. I think it was like the best mic for under a hundred bucks. Yeah, that's but what I, I was looking at. It sounds great. I mean, it sounds good. Well, it's all about the windscreen, I guess. No, your last windscreen week is always too. on my mind. <laughs> I don't know. It's a commercial. But Scott, never stop telling stories, even if you're in the middle of some other conversation. Because if you did, we wouldn't have heard that fantastic story last night, which is mind blowing to me. Oh yeah, oh yeah, the fantastics. Um. Gabe, did you see Scott in the Fantastics? Gabe did not come to the plays. I didn't see the Fantastics. Mm. You came to a play? Did I? I don't think so. That wasn't what you I've were. never seen you in a play before. That wasn't what you were about. Scott, were you in more than one high school production? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was in one where I fell off the stage. <laughs> oh, right. I, uh, we heard a little bit about that one time. Oh, you did? You mentioned that you, you, we were talking about somebody else falling off the stage, and you were saying, like, don't make fun. It happens. Right. And, I, right, and at first right. I thought you were just having, like, sort of an empathetic joke. And then I was like, no, I think this did happen to Scott. But I didn't No, I, didn't press I was you doing I was Satan uh, in uh, uh, JB, which is basically, I think it was Archibald McLeish who wrote it. Um, and it's basically Job. Uh, and so I was, you know, I had this thing and I was really going for it. And then I went to the wall to like, you know, be emphatic and hit the wall and, and I had my eyes closed or something and I missed the wall and, and the, the force of the, the, my fist just took me right off the stage and I went right into the chairs in the front (laughs) and then, you know, I, I, I didn't miss a beat though. I got up and took one of the chairs and threw it across the, the, uh, the auditorium kept kept going. Mm-hmm. So there was a little bit of laughter, but not not a whole lot of laughter. I was able to quash some of it. 
That's the, that's one of my actor stories. Um, I can't tell if Michael Shannon is just sitting there with his hand over the lens or he's frozen. Looks like he's frozen. No, um, he's not. No, maybe he's not. <laughs> he's probably setting up. Michael Shannon as the claw. He's setting he's up. I, I don't even face. know what that means, setting up. What does that mean? Setting up. We, we thought you were setting up your... Uh, Gabe got a brand new mic this week, so uh, he's very happy, and, and he's uh, thinking that maybe you were setting up your brand new mic, I think. Is oh, I right went over to Best Buy today and got a new mic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what happened. Michael Shan, I, how you doing? Yeah, uh, top notch, Scott. Top notch. It's good to see you, man. I haven't seen you in a while. I know. One of the bad things about this whole thing is I usually get to see you at least once or twice a year, and and this is just taking you away from me. Don't don't start crying. I, I, I can see the tears. I not, see those glasses. Not, glass yet, not yet. Not, Well, you spent a lot of last year in Australia. Five months. Fuck. So you did it right. You did quarantine correct. Uh, well, I, at the time I was there, it was kind of uh, uh, a nirvana. Yeah. Uh, since I left, they've had some issues. Uh They've had some really torrential uh, rains that have been difficult to deal with. And apparently there's a flesh-eating bacteria that's making the rounds. So I'm glad I missed that. But when I was there, it was, it was very nice. Yeah. Yeah. And what were you working on over there? A show called Nine Perfect Strangers. It's on a book called mm-hmm. Nine Perfect Strangers. And it's written by the woman who wrote uh, Big Little Lies. She's mm. a big novelist, Australian novelist. She writes a lot of these uh, these books uh, that are, you know, kind of, I don't know, romantic in nature, I guess, or about, uh, you know, issues. And Sorry. so, yeah, she wrote this book, and it's kind of like it's kind of like a fantasy island type scenario. Um, these these nine perfect strangers go to this uh, wellness retreat. To uh, they all have their issues, and they're going there to try and uh, get get well. And it's run by this very eccentric uh, woman uh, who has some very um, mysterious uh, methods, mm-hmm. and yeah, it gets kind of nuts. So you're not playing Napoleon in this. I mean, it says that your name is Napoleon. You're not playing the Napoleon, are you? Napoleon Bonaparte. Yes. <laughs> you. <laughs> do you, you want to hear my playing. French accent? Yes, I do. This is what I spent eight episodes doing. Okay. We will not. No, that's not even French. What is it? <laughs> we. Me? No, uh, I play a. What's my guy's name? Napoleon. Dynamite. Marcone, Marconi. <laughs> Marconi. I was going to say macaroni, but it's Napoleon Marconi. Yeah. I go there with my wife and my daughter. 
And uh, so we're three. That's the sound of wine. Uh, we're three of the nine perfect strangers. And then there's six other strangers. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. You're in your bathroom. I am because I'm trying to avoid the the train. Uh, the L is right outside of my house. But um, I always wonder how people live in apartments like that. Every time I love I- it, man. I mean, it's you like hear living the train next... every like nine, seven minutes, right? It's soothing. It's like living next to the ocean. At least that's what I tell myself. Jesus. You know, when I was looking at the place, they go, well, you're right next to the train. Yeah, you know, hopefully. And I was like, oh, well, that's going to be, it's going to suck. But I was like, you know, Brer Rabbit in the Briar Patch. I was like, oh, yeah, throw me into this thing. Well, you are used to loud noises i suppose that does help that does help. yeah maybe if you like directed were like a funeral director or something it would be a little bit more <laughs> discombobulating that's a good idea somebody we did a podcast last night okay uh with with ben's friend uh pat healy uh-huh yeah i know pat you know pat mm-hmm. and his brother so, jim yeah jim yeah, he used yeah. to work at that uh, Eastman Kodak yeah. uh, museum up in Rochester. So Pat was saying that the first time he ran into you, you were at a party uh, laid out on on the bed, not on the bed, on a couch, just completely laid out on the couch, and you had a plastic bag over your head. And uh, I don't know what you were doing with the plastic bag, but they said, hey, there's Mike Michael Shannon. Do you want to meet him? He goes, maybe some other time. Huh. Is that something you used to do? Well, I was really into Michael Hutchins, so maybe that was like uh, <laughs> around the time of, uh, I can't remember. I'm not good with the anecdotes because most of my life is just a, a blur, which is why I, I sometimes yeah. I, I can be frustrating, a frustrating interview. But I mean, Pat, I think Pat has a lot of credibility. He's he's a real credible source. He wouldn't make up some jive just to like entertain you. He's a he's not reliable kind of narrator. Guy. Yeah, but I I I, I yeah parties uh, you know they're difficult. Who mm. really enjoys going to a party? Yeah, I don't like going to people's houses anymore. It's just let's just go to a bar. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. Like Liars Club. Yes, Liars Club. Well, most people probably don't know um, you did a video for us at Liars Liars Club. Yes, sir. Yes. All right, here's a story. Uh, So I was supposed to pick up Mike before for to drive him to the shoot. And he gives me his address and I put it into my maps app. And I'm, I'm like, oh, he lives in Palatine. I was like, okay, that seems a little strange. I thought he lived in the city, but, you know, he's got money. He can live out there. So I'm driving out there, and the traffic is fucking murder. And I get out there, and I'm like, where does he live? What is going on? And he's texting me. He's like, where are you? Uh, Are are you here yet? Are are you close? I'm going to go back upstairs. And then I'm looking around, and I realize, no, no, he lives in the city, and I've fucked up. I've basically fucked up the entire video and 
I thought Felix and everybody was going to be super bummed. Um, but yeah, that was Scott. That, that was wasn't your fault because I live on a, a weird street called. Okay. But the okay. thing is, is that officially, I live. <laughs> so if yeah. I give you my address and you put it in the Google, I have to say I live at. I can't even remember the number because I can't tell you the last time I was even in Chicago. Uh, so I, this condo has just been sitting dormant. But um, yeah, so you have to say. That was and, and that was my mistake. That's what sent you to uh, Palatine. Well, that's nice of you. But, you know, at the time, you know, you were nice enough to agree to do the fucking video. And then here I am, I, you know, you're like, where is this guy? And I'm out in Palatine. Yeah. And I call I call Felix. I'm like, you guys got to get somebody over there right now and pick him <laughs> up before this whole thing yeah. just goes away. Yeah. But it all worked out. I. It's a fun video. It's yeah. A, it's a monster song. It's a monster track. I love that track. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, yeah. it's a it's a great video. And, you know, it's it's at least 50% due to you. But was well, that... it's not as... I don't like it as much as the Foreigner music video I did. Well, why should you? Yeah. But Foreigner's the... They're the best. Were you, were you going to say something? Ben? I was just going to ask. I've seen this video. I, I, you're talking about the um, Innocence video, right? Innocence video, yeah. But I've also seen on YouTube a video of the two of you on stage at the Liars Club playing a Cars song. Is that the same time? No, that, that was, was at, at the, the Empty Bottle. Yeah. Oh. oh, okay. That was something that, what, did you set that up, Mike? Whose idea was it? It was I think that yours. Was Jay, that was Jason Narduzzi's idea. Okay. Jason Narduzzi, he, he said, we should do a Cars show. He said, I've been listening to the Cars a lot lately, and uh, we should do a show from their first three albums. Because after that, it falls off. Right. I said, right. Oh, you, I said, okay. Yeah. You sent me a text. You're like, do you like the Cars? I said, who yeah. doesn't? Yeah, that's another thing well, that I'm sucks so glad about COVID. You came we and didn't did get that. to do a Christmas show like that this year. Yeah, yeah dude, thanks for or asking. The, the, what, the show. What, what, uh, what would the, the next show one be? That I usually do with uh, Matt Walker, the, the Bowie show at Metro. We missed that right. this year. The Sons of the Silent Age on right. Bowie's birthday. Yeah. Yeah, the last time you did that, you did a pretty killer version of Man Who Sold the World. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was fun. I love yeah. this. It's pretty fucking convincing. Yeah. Speaking of music, all right, there's all this talk about the 90s being that great time for the Chicago music scene. Yeah. But there was this thing going on in the Chicago theater scene that would kind of go on to become legendary, and you were a part of it. And nobody, I feel like nobody ever really talks about that. It pisses me off that I wasn't even aware of it but you know killer joe became this thing that just kind of never just got bigger and bigger and bigger and what 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 year did you start doing that oh wow hey thanks for bringing that up sorry <laughs> if you hear creaking i'm sitting in my rocking chair okay um i 
oh my god i was 19 shit the first time i did that show yeah so a four 90, 89, uh, that's 15, 93, 93, 93 I, think, I yep. think, was the first time I did Killer Joe. That was at uh, the Next Lab. There used to be a theater in Emerson called the Next Theater at the Noise Cultural Arts Center, and they had a, a, they had a main stage that was very kind of conventional and comfortable, and then they had a little studio theater they called the next lab which was a very tiny theater um uh that it was a really a black box i mean that's what mm-hmm. it was and it had like 40 seats in it and uh that's that's where we did killer joe the first time so you did that show a lot in small places well yeah i let's see so we did it at the next lab for about eight months, but we were only doing it three nights a week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So three times a week for about eight months. And then we went to the Edinburgh theater festival in Scotland and we did it at the Traverse theater, which was a a bigger uh, space, but still a kind of a studio, Mm -hmm. not on the main stage. And uh, we only did it there for a couple of weeks. But then we went uh, to the Bush Theater in London, in uh, the Shepherd's Bush uh, neighborhood. And that was more like, uh, that space was very similar to the next lab. Uh, Kind of a very black box, tight uh, squeeze. And, uh, And then from there, we went to the Vaudeville Theater on the West End which was a huge theater, like 800 mm. seats, two balconies. And it was very, very jarring to move into that space because uh, none of us were used to acting in theaters like that. Um, and it was a huge adjustment, but we did that. We did it there for about two months, two or three months. And then a few years went by. Um, and then eventually I did it off Broadway I did it off Broadway in uh, 98 at the Soho Playhouse, which was about 200 seats. And that was the last time I did it. So I did, uh, yeah, five, five different venues. I, I wound up, I think, all together doing about 400 performances of Killer Joe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that shows legendary and it comes up it seems to come up all the time it seems to be coming up a lot more lately for whatever reason uh and and you started that i mean that that everyone talks about the 90s being about the music scene in chicago but i mean if you if you talk about something that has lasted just about longer than anything else that was going on in chicago it's killer joe and bug oh well you know it all goes back to tracy letts there I mean, you have to give him the lion's share of the credit. I met Tracy because he played my dad uh, in a play. Uh, When he played my dad, he was only about 25 years old, I think. And I was 16. But but Tracy's always looked like he was 40 um, ever since he was (laughs) in his 20s. So, um, 
So it worked. And, um, and I actually, uh, I, I, I wasn't at the first reading of Killer Joe. Um, I think the first person to read the part I played, which was a, a fellow named Chris Smith, uh, mm-hmm. I think the first person who read it was Jim True Frost. But for some reason, they I don't know, Tracy would do readings of it every now and then. And, and I guess maybe Jim wasn't available or something, and he asked me to, to read it. And uh, it was really just kismet, you know. It was just yeah. it was extremely... There's been a lot of uh, good fortune for me in my career, my path. And that's a prime example. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Cause when I think of you in that play, I always have to remind myself that you played Chris, not yeah. Joe, you know, yeah. that's the, no, at the time, the first time we did it, an actor named Paul Dillon played killer Joe and uh, Paul gave I, I, at the time, I mean, still in my memory of it, one of the, the the towering performances that I've ever witnessed in a theater. I mean, he was unbelievable in this part. He was. It was a. It was like seeing, you know, I don't know. It must have been like seeing Malkovich in True West or something. He was just. Yeah. Uh, thrilling it was thrilling it was thrilling to be on stage with them and uh he would just he would melt that room i mean he was so intense that you you almost couldn't handle it and uh yeah so but you know tracy not too long ago at this well this was after because you know they made a movie out of killer joe yep which I think is not its best iteration, uh, but fine. Um, and then Tracy said, well, it's, I think it was going to be the 25th anniversary or something. Um, and he said, I, I want to do it on Broadway. I want to mount it on Broadway because it's never been on Broadway, Killer Joe. Crazy. And, uh, and he said, I want you to play Joe. I said, wow, that would be amazing. But it, it, it didn't come together. It's a hard play to get on Broadway. It's obviously got some pretty uh, disturbing aspects, some pretty blue material in it. So it's not, yeah, um, <laughs> uh, yeah it's kind of a, it would be a gutsy play for a producer to get that up on Broadway. Yeah. How much longer after I was Bug the the next thing he wrote after Killer Joe? Bug was the next play that he had produced after Killer Joe. Yes, hmm. we uh, when we were doing Killer Joe in London at the Bush Theater, a, a, a woman who's become a very dear friend of mine named Rose Garnet. She was uh, the artistic. Oh, actually, she wasn't the artistic director. Well, she was a producer. She she ran this place called the Gate Theater over Notting Hill. 
and she saw Killer Joe, and she asked Tracy if he had any other plays because she was interested in, in producing his next play in London. <laughs> and that's when um, he, he gave her Bug. And that was actually the world premiere of Bug was in London at, at Rose's, at, at the time, what was Rose's Theater, the Gate Theater. Yeah. So during this whole time, well, how many performances of Bug did you do? I did Bug, I think about 200 times. Mm -hmm. I did three productions of Bug. I did the production in London. And then uh, when we did it in London, it, it got very mixed reviews. And then um, they did it here in the States at a theater in Washington, D.C. called Woolly Mammoth. And I wasn't involved with that production. And apparently um, it was not, uh, again, it got very mixed response. It was not a big hit or anything. And then mm -hmm. I think there was a production in Boston that, again, just was not catching fire. And then it, the play was kind of dormant for a while. And I found it odd that no one had done it in Chicago um, because, you know, Tracy is very much a Chicago theater artist. Um, and Killer Joe, like you said, had been such a, a large part of that uh, era. But nobody would touch it. And so I was, I belonged to a theater called A Red Orchid Theater and I said to our artistic director, Guy Van Swearingen, I said, we should be doing Bug. We should do Bug here. Uh, but I was out in LA uh, pursuing the celluloid business. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then uh, a, a director named Dexter Bullard, who is a director I, I adore and have worked with many times, and the director that directed me and Tracy in that play where we met. Um, Dexter said, okay, I want to do Bug. But I was gone. I was in LA. I was doing, you know, Bruckheimer movies and whatever. And I'll never forget, I was in Hawaii for the premiere of Pearl Harbor. And I was up at uh, Four Seasons. They had me up in this really nice room. And I was just living the life of Riley, you know? Mm. Yeah. And the phone rings and it's Dexter. And he said, so I just wanted your uh, advice or your input because uh, we've just had callbacks for Bug. And I think I've got it down to two guys to play Peter. And the, these are the two guys. They were two guys that I was familiar with. And he was saying, you know, what do you think? Do you think I should cast Bob or Johnny? You know, I'm using fake names. I was, mm -hmm. And I just, I was sitting here biting my lip, biting my lip. And finally, I just blurted out, all right, Dexter, I'm coming back. I'll come do the fucking play. Fine. <laughs> and I hung up the phone and I got, I fucking left LA. I uh, left the, the Hollywood, uh, you know, allure and went back to do, bug at red orchid and that was in 2001 
And while we were doing Bug at Red Orchid, uh, that's when 9-11 happened, which was, you know, a very strange thing to be doing. Uh, I mean, 9-11 was right. very dramatic for all of us, but when, you, <laughs> when you're playing Peter Evans and then 9-11 happens, it's pretty... Right. Uh, there's a lot of irony there yeah yeah so uh uh and then so anyway that's the second production i did and then the third production was was the one that i did in new york at barrow street theater which william friedkin came to see and uh, you know the rest is uh history yeah yeah hey michael did did tracy did tracy write bug with you in mind uh you know I, I can't say definitively one way or the other whether that is the case. It seems a lot of people seem to think that 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 is so. Um, but I'm not sure that I've ever heard that uh, from Tracy necessarily. Um, uh, I don't know. I you know it it didn't seem like something I could do or you know but I don't know and and I and I know that Tracy enjoys seeing lots of different versions of his plays you know like any playwright mm -hmm. um, they're interested in seeing what different people do with it so but you're in um, you were in London with Tracy doing Killer Joe and yeah. and this producer wanted his next thing and he and he handed right. her bug and at that time was he saying to you hey uh you know this looks like the next production we're going to do and I and Oh uh, yeah no he definitely he 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 kept me appraised yeah in the loop yeah but you know I've outgrown uh, all of those parts now I can't play any of them anymore um that's the interesting thing about these these plays is well you, you change I and, and they they kind of don't <laughs> i don't know what about victims of victims of duty you, you yeah. did that what a couple of years ago well yeah that's ionesco that's right well that's my that's my guy right there ionesco he's like my uh Who's that angel at the end of It's a Wonderful Life? Clarence. 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 Yeah. He's my Clarence, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. taught me about him at yeah. that show. Was that the first show that you guys did at Red Orchid? Oh, dear Lord. No, well, kind of. It, it was Victims of Duty was the beginning of a particular era at Red Orchid. But there had been an, an era before that. I mean, when Guy opened the theater, uh, it, the first play we ever did or that he wanted to do was uh, The Connection by Jack Gelber. That's mm -hmm. why he built the theater, essentially, is so that he could do that play because nobody else wanted to do it, uh, but he wanted to do it. And uh, he figured if he built a theater, then he'd be able to do it. Yeah. And so we did that. I wasn't even in that uh, play, actually. I just uh, 
did the box office. And then the next thing that happened there is I did uh, these Eric Bogosian monologues called Drinking in America. Yeah. I did those. And then, uh, and then some other folks came in and did a play, another theater company. And then the the theater was kind of dark for a while because Guy didn't really have a follow-up. You know, he knew he wanted to do this one play, but after he'd done it, he, he didn't really know what he wanted to do next. And then they found this play, uh, he, one of his acting teachers, a woman named Shira Piven, uh, brought him a play called Born Guilty about the, the children of, of Nazis in, in Germany and what it's like to be you know, to, to go through that experience. And um, it was a huge hit, huge. It ran for months. It moved. It was uh, a really big deal. Um, and then after that, some people that had been involved in that play actually uh tried to take over the theater uh, mm. and wrestle it away from Guy. And it was a very dark, dark period. It was horrible. And, um, and, 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 and finally, we, we nipped that in the bud. And, uh, and then after that, that's when we did uh, Victims of Duty. Yeah. Yeah. Victims of Duty. Yeah, Victims of Duty. That was the first Ionesco play uh, that I ever did. Right. Uh, me and Guy, me and Guy would usually uh, we'd go to Borders or Barnes and Noble, and we would just sit uh-huh. in the theater section and read plays. Um, that's you know that was like our idea of a good time. And uh, right. <laughs> and one day we were at the Borders on. Uh, yeah, I think it's the one that used to be on Michigan Avenue, the the giant yeah. one, like five floors or something. And, uh, and I, I can't remember if it was me or him who picked it up first, but we we started reading it, and and, and it, it just it was uh, like it just exploded in our faces. We just didn't. Uh, yeah, we couldn't believe that someone had had the. Uh, the evolved sensibility to write a play like that. So we, we knew we had to, to do it no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing, uh, after I saw you do that in 2019 and I re- remember the entire thing was like, you're like, well, I'm a little older. I'm too old for, for the part. And I think <laughs> you had some, some line in the play where you sort of made a joke about that. Uh, yeah. Where they said that you were, a, a kid or something. You right. kind of like had this look on your face. You didn't look at the audience, but you, you sort of like, there's something that you let us know that, you know, that was. A joke. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, because the first time we did it, I really was quite young. I really was. There's a picture actually, uh, in the, in the office upstairs of, uh, of, of the original cast of the first time we did it. Um, it was me and guy, and then uh, 
the 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 lead actress was actually uh, Amy Landecker. I don't know if you're familiar with Amy Landecker. No, no. Her dad's a DJ in Chicago. Oh, Michael Landecker. No, John Records Landecker. Oh, John, John Records Landecker. <laughs> and uh, but Amy's actually done quite well for herself uh, out west. Uh, she's a phenomenal actress, uh, and she uh, she did a Coen Brothers movie. Serious man, and she was okay. on that show Transparent. Yeah, I know yeah. exactly who you're talking about. She's great. Yeah, in that yeah. Movie. she's she's so she was, but then in the in the revival, we got Karen Aldridge, who again was just phenomenal. So, uh, but yeah, I, I was actually very young the first time we did that play. Um, yeah, but that was a while ago. Yeah, but I like to revisit the Ionesco plays. I've done, uh, uh, I've done Victims of Duty twice, and he's also written a play called The Killer that I've done twice. And I'd, mm-hmm. I'd like to do them even uh, again because they're more, you know, they're not they're not photorealism, you know. You can be right. able to, there's a little bit more flexibility with them. Yeah. Yeah, it was funny. Like a couple of months after I saw you do that play, I went to go see Orson Welles' version of The Trial. Oh, I was yeah? kind of like, oh, man, this is like really like Ionesco or Ionesconian. And, uh, yeah. and it read up about it. It turns out that Wells produced Rhinoceros in 1960, yeah. just before he made the trial. So that had a lot of that. And then when you think about the trial influencing after hours and it's kind of like the guy's influence kind of has never really gone away. You know, there's a great play written by Austin Pendleton Mm -hmm. called Orson's Shadow. And it's about Orson Welles directing, I believe, Laurence Olivier Mm -hmm. in Rhinoceros. Okay. Uh, They did it at uh, Steppenwolf originally, but it transferred to New York to Barrow Street Theater, the same theater I did Bug at. And Tracy was actually in it. Um, he played Kenneth Tynan. Um, and Orson Welles was played by Jeff Still, and Lawrence Olivier was played by John Judd. Uh-huh. And it was a phenomenal production, but it's a very interesting play. So if, you, if it, I just that's what I thought of when you but started making those connections. But yeah, it's true. It's uh, it's beautiful when you're able to, to see that kind of um, how things uh, are influencing one another. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of, I mean, uh, let's talk about some of the celluloid stuff. But I, I think it's important to keep in mind that during these movies, whatever connection that you made in Chicago with the Red Orchid Theater, that never went away. I mean, I still see you do benefits for them all the time. And it's so sweet to see the the way that they look up to you. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's actually how you and I met when you were doing one of those benefits. Oh, right. Yeah. When you, you were gracious enough to play you and your, your group, the married men, uh, I believe that was at the double door. Right. Yeah. May, may it rest I think you just started a uh, Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a while ago. So, I, Jesus. I, yeah, I, I cornered you and made you do your uh, Scorsese impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That guy's a trip. Yeah? yeah? I mean, he's just, uh, I, 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 his energy is just so monumental. I don't, I, 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 he, he has more energy. He's, you know, however many years older than me. Right. He has more energy than I had when I was five years old. When you, you're right, exactly. When you signed on to that, did you know that he was going to direct the first episode of that, or was that just a fucking bonus? Oh no, I knew. I mean, I met with him. My, my the first meeting I took was with him and Terrence Winter. Mm-hmm. I was shooting. Um, Oh, that remake of 13, Zamedi. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the original. It's a black and white film made by a, a Georgian director, like the country Georgia. Uh, mm-hmm. Gala Bublani. It was a phenomenal movie. I saw it at Music Box, I think, actually. Yeah. And so he came to America uh, kind of riding the wave of that the success of that movie and they of course wanted him to make an American version Mm -hmm. and uh, although it had quite an international cast or at least a bunch of Brits in it right? but it was a real train wreck of a movie uh, a real train wreck of a movie and I was on the set of that and they said um, you know when you're done today, you got to go meet um, about this TV show. And I said, okay. And I had, a, had a, an appointment, a time, scheduled time. And uh, I said, who am I meeting with? And they said, well, this guy, Terrence Winter, he created, he, he was a writer on Sopranos. I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah, I never watched that. I don't know. Uh-huh. You don't like, like TV. Yeah, I don't. And then, and Mike then, does not watch TV, everybody. Yeah. And and I said, well, is anybody else going to be there? And they're like, yeah, Martin Scorsese is going to be there. I was like, hot diggity dog. Okay, <laughs> I'll be there. And But then the day went over time. Uh, we were going over because the movie was such a cluster F-C-K. Um, I don't know if you can swear on this show. Please do. And yeah. I, Sitting there, I was. I wanted to die. I was like, I got it. I have to go meet Martin Scorsese. Please let me out of here. Yeah. And then I finally wrapped, <laughs> and I was calling. I was like, Look, I can't be there by whatever the time was. And they're like, Well, they're staying another hour, and then they're going to leave. And they were driving there, and it was the worst traffic because we were shooting up in Yonkers. So I was trying to go from like Yonkers down to Manhattan at like the tail end of rush hour. And I, I was the longest car ride of my life. Right. I was like, I'm going to miss this. I'm going to get there. I have a chance to meet Martin Scorsese and I'm going to get there and they're going to be gone. It's, they're just going to be gone. But thank God um, I got there just in a nick of time. So I knew. I, I, I knew, but even that meeting. So when I walked into that meeting, I was so uh, uh, at my wits end, uh, untethered. I was just very um, 
jittery uh-huh. that I can't really remember much about it at all. I remember that Scorsese was talking a lot. He was talking a lot about history and the and the the period of the show and but he was talking so fast and I was so uh tired and and worn you know, just worn out from being anxious that I, I really couldn't process what he was saying at all. I right. just sat there nodding my head like, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Of course, of course. <laughs> and then uh but then I got the, I got the job, but uh, but I sure I mean I, I I remember it fondly. I mean, but he would he would shoot. He he had no compunctions about just staying there 16, 17 hours. He would just wow. keep shooting. Um, and nobody yeah, wanted to disappoint him, so everyone. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. He just he had lots of shots he wanted to get you know yeah he was the polar opposite of like sydney lament who was you were never there longer than if you if you got into double digit hours he considered it a, a failure on his part like <laughs> was that the last thing that lumet did before the devil knows you did yeah that was the last film he made that's a pretty goddamn good last movie yeah i think so i mean I just think I was, I just feel very fortunate to have gotten to gotten to see the man in action, you know. Yeah. What's your favorite movie of his? That is really hard to say. That's really hard to say, honestly. Yeah. I'm a network guy myself. The verdict. The verdict, yeah. Uh let me think about it. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, the, the thing about that movie, and, and I have been thinking about that movie a lot lately, that, that's, that's something that y- you, you do, and, and you did a lot when you first started getting into movies, is you would, I don't want to say steal the show, but you'd walk out of there and people would go, who the fuck was that guy? And that guy terrified me, or that guy pinned me to the back of the seat. I mean, and I mean, the first time that guy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first time I remember that happening was I went to see Jesus, Jesus's son at the three penny. And your whole part of that movie was done, done. Yeah. Fucking done, done. It's funny. I was just in uh, Costa Rica with my family and uh, we were staying at this pretty nice joint in uh, Nasara, which is like a beach town. And they, anyway, the, the hotel had a little like bookshop in it. And I went in the bookshop one day and I looked on the shelf and there was Jesus's son. I was like, wow, so crazy. And yeah. I, just, I saw it and it just made me, and I turned to my wife, I said, oh, they got, they got this Jesus's son. She's like, oh, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I know. Everybody. It's not that big a deal. But I, I, it's just brought, when I think about, because that was when, um, that was the first film gig I got when I was doing Killer Joe in New York. Um, and this guy came to see Killer Joe one night, and he called me the next day. 
And he said, I want you to come to my office. I said, okay. I came to his office and he said, I don't like going to play as much. I, uh, I don't really enjoy it that much. And I had a headache and I really, I didn't want to go last night, but I went and saw your play and, um, He's like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna blow smoke up your ass, but I'm, I'm a manager, and I want, I want to manage you. I said, Oh, okay. Well, I don't know what that means. He said, Oh, I'll tell you what it means. And he picked up the phone, and he called. He, he's on the phone. And he's talking to somebody. He said, Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm sitting here with this kid, and uh, I want you to look at him. And he, can he come in tomorrow? You're doing that thing, right? The Jesus thing. Yeah, I want him to come in for that. Will you look at him? Okay, fine, fine. And then he's like, he writes down, he's like, here's your appointment time. Here's the address. You go here, I'm going to do the thing. And uh, and you're, you're going to walk out of there and you're going to have a job. And then you're going to know what a manager does. Right. <laughs> and, then, and then you're going to want to work with me. And I said, oh, okay. And that was... Uh, that was Lee Daniels. Mm. I don't oh, know really? If you know who Lee Daniels. Is. I do know Lee Daniels. Yeah, he used to be a manager, and he was my manager. And he before signed he became me. a director. Before he became, yeah, well, it went manager, then producer, because I was actually in a movie that he produced, and then director. Mm-hmm. And what was uh, the he movie dropped. that he produced? Well, he the first movie he produced was Monsters Ball. Okay. And he tried to get me into yeah. that, but Heath Ledger wound up doing it. Yeah. But then he produced this movie called uh, The Woodsman with Kevin Bacon. Right, yeah. And he, he managed to get me into that one. And then it wasn't too long after that where he called me up and he said, you know what? He said, I, I think I've done enough of this uh managing stuff i just want to do full-time making movies and i said okay you, you you did your job um yeah that's fine but uh but he was a hell of a manager boy oh boy he was wow. something else but anyway that's what i think of when i think of jesus son yeah oh that's great yeah. I, I I didn't know that. I mean, I like his movies. They're so fucking goofy in the best possible way. It's like who who thinks this way? I, yeah. I dig all of his movies. He's very he he is a very unique person. I do I can honestly say I've never come across anybody quite like him. He's a force of nature. Yeah. And his mind where is going like a pinball machine, just all, you know, it, uh, but he's super smart. And, um, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested actually to work with him, uh, now, but yeah, he hasn't, great. it hasn't, uh, <laughs> it would be very interesting actually. Yeah. How about characters? What was the next year you did Cecil be demented with John? Waters? Yeah. I mean, well, that was that one of those fucking crazy moments. Yeah, well, that was the next thing he got me, that Lee got me uh, uh, involved with. Um, and that was, uh, that was a beautiful time. That was uh, so much fun. John Waters is a very warm, lovely, 
a very charming and, and very funny man. Um, and everybody adores him. He's very loyal to his, you know, he has the same crew for all his pictures. And, um, and it was just very, uh, it was exciting. You know, you see uh, some young people in that film, you know, like yeah. Maggie Gyllenhaal, Adrian Grenier. I mean, even Stephen Dorff hadn't done all that much. You know, to, um, like that's where it's, it's just fun to go. It'd probably be fun to go back and look at it. It'd probably be fun for me to go back and look at it, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Were you, uh, were you able to pick your own patron saint director? Oh, was for the tattoo? Choice, Fassbender? Yeah, no, yeah. that was, that was written into the script. He, he put a lot of thought into that actually. Uh, Mr. Waters did. It's a shame that he's not making pictures anymore. I mean, you know, he's a great writer, and I, I, I've seen him on his book tours and stuff, and that's fun, but it's just a shame he's not making pictures anymore. Yeah, it seems like him and we're talking about uh, Carpenter, and, uh, you know, it just seems like Hollywood's only interested in their properties and remaking their movies and they're not really interested in anything else new that these people have to say. Well, and, and, and with the advent of all these uh, outlets, in a way, the, 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 the gluttony of it is, is, um, is not good for the old school type people, I think. I'm not yeah. sure why. You would think John Waters could have his own channel. I mean, it's just, it's like, there's so many channels, but, uh, there's something very strange going on in the business. I, I can't really, and I'm not, I, I'm not an old timer really, but it's certainly, I, I don't feel like I even have a handle on it really. Yeah. There's too much, there's too much crap. There's just too much stuff. It's too much. Yeah. And you, you know, you want to work. You're like, well, I, I, I need to pay the bills or whatever, but it's gotten to a point for me. It's like, is this really worth the effort or anybody's time? I mean, I just wish there was more, I don't know, discretion or more thought put into it. There's just too much. I don't know. I mean, you seem to make pretty good choices, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. Why is that? Like, why do you con constantly make good choices? Are you, you, you don't give up, you care about the paycheck, but that's not the only thing or, you know, what is it? Oh, well, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, uh, yeah, well, I, I, I've gotten to the point where I'm, I'm not swinging from branch to branch, you know, uh, hoping to survive. I can, uh, I can take a break if need be and, and still be okay. So, and I'm not trying to stockpile cash or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't see the point in that really. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I made some, I made, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I appreciate you saying that. I also would maintain that I, I've made quite a lot of pictures that maybe not so many people have seen or have been all that interested in but which is fine i don't I, well I, 
Now, I don't consider Which it like fine, a mistake yeah. or anything, but um, I'd say for every picture I do that seems to cause a, a ruckus, there's four or five that probably very few people even know <laughs> that they exist. So Yeah, yeah but that right. seems to be because you work with indie filmmakers and it seems like it's you know you do one to pay the bills and then you do one for the work or yeah i mean i'm just i'm just guessing i I don't don't know what your thought process is jesus i wish i did uh (laughs) no it's a lot of times it's just about the people it's just people right that you talk to them and you think well i want to this person has a vision and it's so important to them. They seem genuine and they seem capable and I'll give it a shot. Like Uh, Jeff Nichols. Well, Jeff, yeah. Jeff's an exceptional case. I mean, Jeff is, uh, Jeff's my, my brother, you know I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's been too long. We haven't done anything in a long time. He's, he's had some, some trials and tribulations and and then, you know, COVID and all that. But, mm. but we might be cooking something up here pretty, pretty soon. Yeah. Man, every time Midnight Special comes on, that opening just fucking hooks me. I'm just, oh, yeah. All right, this is what I'm doing today. <laughs> Tell me about Curtis Hansen. Oh, yeah. I worked with him twice, actually. Yeah. I think that's uh-huh. probably... Eight Mile is probably a movie that most people probably remember the seeing you for the or noticing you for the first time oh right? uh, yeah not me but the philistines <laughs> the philistines uh man what do you say about curtis you know curtis he had he he, he was kind of like obi-wan kenobi or something he just had uh-huh. this very monkish kind of wise aura you know, he was very calm. He, he, I never heard him raise his voice or he never seemed to get agitated about anything. He never seemed like stressed out about anything. He was just very calm and never particularly in a rush. Mm-hmm. Didn't mind doing lots of takes. Um, and always kind of had a beatific little grin on his face, you know. Um, it didn't say too much. Didn't you know? Didn't feel like he had to. You know, some people they feel like, oh well, everyone's expecting me to say something, so I better say something. But yeah. he he didn't do that. If he if he didn't if he didn't have anything to say, he didn't say anything. He said, well, let's let's do it again. That would be, you know, okay. Uh, so, um, you know, I was impressed. I, I was very impressed with the relationship he had with uh, Eminem, you know, uh, because uh, I guess I can call him Marshall. Uh, Eminem really uh, respected him and really was uh, yeah. very humble on the set and very uh, uh, respectful of the other actors and mm-hmm. 
not that I w was necessarily expecting something different, but you, you never know. I mean, right. someone in that situation could easily be uh, like, well, this is my movie and I, I'm the, you know, obviously I'm the center of attention here. So everybody just do what I want you to do or I don't know. You could be right, boss. But he came to work. Yeah, he was very he was, yeah. down to earth, and and I think a lot of that was a lot of that could he, he could just be him, but I think some of that had to do with Curtis and the the vibe that Curtis cultivated on set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Curtis Hansen's career. Like he made all those sort of lurid '80s kind of Hitchcockian you know, like Bedroom Window and uh, Hand That Rocks the Cradle. And then, uh, you know, he gets sort of respect with L.A. Confidential, and then he starts making a different kind of movie every time. He makes Wonder Boys, then 8 Mile. What's that movie, In Her Shoes with Cameron Diaz? Oh, right. Yeah, that yeah, movie yeah, yeah. reduces me to tears every time. Yeah. Did you just get choked up saying that, Scott? Yeah. He did. He did. <laughs> I auditioned for Wonder Boys. Oh yeah, what part? The, the Michael Douglas. What do you mean, what part? The <laughs> Tobey Maguire part. Oh, uh, yeah, I read for that. I got well, real close mean. on. Uh, well, I don't know how close I got. That's actually not true. Uh, sometime I should do an interview about all the parts I didn't get. Yeah. We can start right now. <laughs> well, what's the one where Al Pacino's fucking blind? Hoo-ha. <laughs> Scent of a woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah You're going to play Al Pacino's part? Yeah. No, uh, you know. What's that guy? Chris O'Donnell. Rob, yeah. Robin. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, primal fear. Uh, oh yeah, you're gonna do the Ed Norton part. Well, I wasn't gonna do it. I was trying. I was endeavoring to have the part bestowed upon me. But then I heard it would have been good. I heard, and I, 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 I kept saying, you know, I'm, I'm from Kentucky because the character was supposed to be from Kentucky. I guess I'm like, I'm, I'm really from Kentucky. But then I heard from my agent that they, the casting director said, we've found the Mozart of acting. <laughs> I she referred to Ed Norton, the Mozart of acting. I'm like, well, I can't compete with that. I'm was the, he trying li to say I'm you the were list the, of acting. Was he trying to say you were the Salieri of acting? Yeah. Yes, I was the Salieri of acting. Fuck that guy. Let's talk about maybe the greatest movie ever made, and you were in it. Wow. Let's go to prison. <laughs> I, you really had me. That was a, that was a cliffhanger uh, there. Uh, let's go to prison. Yes, we shot that in a real, well, defunct prison. I think out in Romeoville or somewhere. That was fun. I like Bob Odenkirk. Man, he was super nice. He was. That was just a oh, fun, yeah. fun set. Will, 
and the yeah. Dax, and uh, yeah, that was a hoot. I mean, when did you see- when the hell did I make that movie? Can you refresh? Uh, it came out in two thousand six. God, that's not even that long ago. It's, I can't remember a goddamn thing about it. Isn't that the same year Bug came out? Is it? Is it? Jesus, I don't know. I believe so. Maybe you have to look that up. I do know we made Bug in New Orleans or Metairie, to be exact. What was it like working with Friedkin? Did he did he trust that you knew that character inside and out? Well, that's why he wanted me there. Because Lionsgate, who was producing the movie, said, uh, "Billy, look, this kid. Uh, can we not do it with this kid? Can we get somebody like?" more sexier or more famous or something because that would really make it a lot easier on all of us yeah yeah and billy was like nobody else can do this there's none of these fools on this list of paper can could do this um i've seen this kid do this he can do it um so just let let me use him and they said okay again another brush of uh a good fortune for me. But yeah, well, Friedkin had long, long since passed giving a fuck about anything at that point. Yeah. You know, he's going to do what he's going to he do. Did, you know, he, it was interesting because, I mean, I don't want to, I don't know. I don't want to, when I originally met with him to talk about it, he really, he really wanted to use the whole cast from the play in the movie. Mm-hmm. He's like, this, this cast is perfect. I don't want to change anybody. We should just film this. But then, you know, it morphed into, oh, no, let's make it like a movie. And whoever plays Agnes has got to be somebody. And it got different. But the one thing he, he stuck to his guns on was, was me. So very, very fortunate. Yeah. Michael, I saw your uh, episode of Room 104 today. The swipe today right you episode. saw it. Oh, wow. So I, I, I had no idea. I had no yeah. idea that you were on it. And I was looking around and I was like, oh, well, I've got time to watch this. You play a Russian. Yeah. Huh. I do. I play a Russian. Uh, I, I, really, I really liked that, uh, the woman who, who wrote and directed that episode, Liza. Johnson. Yeah. She's very smart. And I think the, I think that's a very smart, there's a lot going on in that script. It's very clever. I think that's probably, uh, short of going to see you in a play. That is probably about as close as the experience comes to watching you in a play is watching you in that episode of room. Four. Huh? Well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is very that uh, uh, setup is very theatrical because yeah. that's that's literally like a theater set, um, right? And people have done uh, throughout the course of that show very theatrical things uh, in there. I mean, they've done musicals and dance pieces, and they've just done all kinds of weird crazy stuff on that show. It's a shame actually that they stopped producing it 
I don't know why they would. I mean, it's got to be incredibly low overhead. It can't yeah. cost very much. <laughs> well, um, I wouldn't think so. No, they don't. They have the same set. Uh, I mean, I probably made 25 cents to do it. I mean, they don't pay anybody. So I, I don't understand why they would, they would shut it down because it, it was really a remarkable conduit for creativity. Um, but say la vie, but they did get a, what did they get? Four seasons out of it, I think. Three or three yeah. or four. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I love doing that. And uh, I love Judy Greer. Uh, she's so funny. And um, and I got to do the, the what did you think of my uh, rap? Your rat? My rap. Oh, it's dude. <laughs> It was great. Rap. It was great. I liked that, and I, I liked you, your soliloquy. We can talk about my rap later. Terrific as well. Uh, oh yeah, talk your rap. To... Yeah, yeah. When you when, the way you go into it, the way you go into it, where you're like, uh, what do you say? I uh, the, the the you keep repeating something <laughs> over and over, and then it gets into the rap. Right. I'm known everywhere. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I've known. Yeah, that's it. It was one of those like rap type of things that's always in a rhyme yeah yeah and i was yeah. like did he just say what i thought he did <laughs> and then you repeat it again and i'm like okay i think i know what's about to happen here and then it right. happens and then it happens yeah yeah that was a musical number it was and with the marching band yeah yeah transvestite yeah craziness yeah so how how, how are you doing with the whole covid thing are, are you I mean, it's basically, we're coming out of it. The light's coming at the end of the tunnel, but do you feel like you came through it all right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, like you said, I went to Australia, and um, I'm, I've been pretty busy. I was just out in L.A. for a couple of months. I'm about to go back out there tomorrow to finish... I'm going out there to finish a job that I was doing when COVID started. Mm -hmm. This is a, a an experience I haven't had before. Yeah. I'm going to finish shooting a movie that I started shooting over a year ago, um, which is very strange. Uh, but the the first four months of COVID, I, I was just here in the house, and I have to say, I, I didn't I didn't mind it. Mm -hmm. I didn't mind the uh, the break, right? Um, but I'm worried. I'm more worried about uh, just society at large. I think yeah. on the spectrum of people, what what people have had to go through, I'm at the very low end of that spectrum. Um, I worry about people that whose lives have been, you know, destroyed. Yeah. By it, I've I've been very blessed. It hasn't really. I mean, it, it's it's been hard for my kids, I think, a little bit, just because they both really love school and going to school. But uh, 
for me, it's not been too much of a burden. Yeah. But I only do have one question. Uh, I, we've met before at a local eight show, and I, I know you're big into music. But uh, like, are, are you looking forward to being able to see live music again? Because you know, there's a local H tour coming up in the fall, and, and maybe you know, hopefully things will get back Plug. to normal. But uh, look at the way he plugged that! <laughs> oh, fucking incredible! So wait a second, you're going on tour? We've got dates. Uh, they start in uh, the August 31st. We, we should be in New York uh, within a week of that, like the first week of September. Yeah, they're they're everyone's pretty confident. There's just one venue that has sort of uh, has stopped selling tickets because they're not sure, and that's in Philadelphia. But everybody else is pretty like, no, this is happening. We're we're confident, and uh, you know, barring anything awful, I think it's going to happen. And is there a cutoff? Like, how many tickets still sell? So far, everyone thinks uh, it's going to happen with, uh, you know, capacity. It, the only club that has cut off the tickets they're selling is in uh, Philadelphia. Oh, where the Eagles? Are you playing the stadium where the Eagles play? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So they that's cut right. it off at 20000 You know, I mean, it's better than nothing, right? Right. Have you ever imagined playing like Soldier Field or something? Would you even want to do that? I've played Soldier Field twice. No, twice. Are you oh, kidding me? Yeah, that's right. Twice. 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 When? Uh, we opened up for Metallica at Soldier Field, and we we played halftime at a football game. Chicago Bears playoff game. Are you kidding me? I didn't know this. No. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit, it a, man. It was a trip, man. I mean, how on the monitors, like, can you even hear what's happening? Yeah, you can hear. If, if the monitors weren't there, you'd be completely screwed. Like, just hearing your voice a few seconds later, uh, you'd be completely out of it. But since the monitors are so loud, uh, I, I can't hear any of that stuff. And the amps are so loud, it, you know, it, we don't get the slap back, but it's there. Oh, Wow, Jesus! I'm sorry. I feel like a a real rube now that I didn't know that. <laughs> played there twice. Jesus, twice. Crazy. Been yeah. there, done that is what they say. Yeah. Well, wait, yeah. How do you top that? You quit. What about Wrigley? You played Wrigley? No. No, no, I haven't played Wrigley. Thanks for bringing it up, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Keep practicing. Yeah. I'll... <laughs> Thanks. That's we're... Those are words I'll take with me. <laughs> who, you got, who you got for the Oscars this year? Because a lot of people don't know this, but when you and I put our heads together, we predict Oscar winners. Uh, when um, that year Shape of Water won, I saw it. I texted you. Yeah. I said, "Man, just saw Shape of Water. I, it was great. I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna win the Oscar." You're like, "What are you doing?" I go, "Well, I'm on my, on my way to uh, Jesus Lizard." And you text me back, and you're like, "I'm right behind you." <laughs> and <laughs> you were at the show, oh, and then God. and then it wins. 
And then the next year, we were hanging out at our show at the Empty Bottle downstairs. And you said, yeah, I just saw this movie called Green Book. And I go, oh, yeah? Yeah, I really liked it. And then that movie wins the Oscar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, what's it going to be this year? I haven't seen... I haven't seen any of the uh, contenders, to be honest. I had a weird experience this year, though, where they have these awards here in New York called the Gotham Awards, and they're kind of an early award season, you know, barometer. And they asked me to present the uh, award for Best Picture. And I said, okay. I said, what, do I do this on Zoom? And they said, no. We're, there's this huge ballroom called Cipriani's. It's like a huge restaurant kind of ballroom place where they usually have these awards. And they said, no, we want you to come to Cipriani's. And I was very confused. I thought, well, but there's COVID. Mm-hmm. And, but I, I go along with it. And then the night of, I... I go in the car and I get out and I go in the Cipriani's there and they're having it there, but there's, but there's no audience. There's nobody there where the audience would typically be seated, uh, where the tables would be. There's just these SUVs, uh, parked there. Um, cause I guess some car company was sponsoring the evening. So they <laughs> had these, yeah, they had these shiny SUVs, like beautifully lit, like this was uh, the audience or something. And then mm-hmm. pretty much yeah. everybody, everybody who won an award was on Zoom, and most of the presenters were on Zoom. But every once in a while, they would have a presenter who was actually there, and like dressed up fancily, um, mm-hmm. and it was very it was very surreal and unusual, but I presented, uh, the best, uh, picture award to nomad land. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> but that was the Gotham's. Uh, but I guess this nomad land has been racking up the accolades and honors, uh, throughout the season. So, um, yes, but by the Lucas Shannon metric, since we're yeah. talking about it, it's going to win. Ah, I, but I, but I haven't seen it. <laughs> you got to see it to, to be able to predict it. it, it it's it's good. It, my favorite is uh, you've got to see this uh, Sound of Thunder. Have you seen that? Sound of Thunder. What are you talking about? <laughs> Not Sound of Thunder. God damn it! What is it? Sound, of metal. Sound of metal. Sound of metal. <laughs> Sound of metal. Sound of metal. <laughs> Fucking. Well, of course you like Sound of Metal. You're a a hard rock musician. Dude, it's really, really, really good. And that Reza Med guy is fucking amazing. And so is Paul Racy. Do you know Paul Racy? I think Ben just just asked asked that that question. question. Yeah. (laughs) I don't don't know who this man is. So what did Pat Healy say about me exactly, (laughs) other than he saw me with a plastic bag over my head? He said, that fucking guy... Uh, everyone was saying to him, you've got to see Killer Joe because this Michael Shannon guy is the guy. 
And he's like, fuck that guy. I'm the guy. Uh, and, yeah. <laughs> and then he went to see Killer Joe. He's like, whoa, that's the guy. <laughs> oh, jeez, Louise. You Did he talk about... Yeah. Did he Did talk, talk about, about the movie that that I made for him? Yes, he did. Mullet. Mullet. Oh, right. See, I'm not such a good listener. And, and Have then, you and seen Jim, Mullet? Jim chimed in to say, I'm, I'm in a few frames with Michael Shannon in, in Pat's film, Mullet. Oh, yeah. I have a picture, actually, of me and Jim um, somewhere in my house from Mullet. Still. You should watch Mullet. It's really funny. I will watch it. And that cat. How do I watch uh, something like this? That cat, uh... From laughing, it's a really funny little weird movie. Pat's really okay. So, Dog Day Afternoons, my favorite Sydney Lament film. Excellent so choice. Back to that, Henry. Is it? Wait, Michael, are you talking about Henry Gibson? Henry Gibson, you did it. Thank you. You win the prize. Also in Hooray. also in Magnolia with Pat Healy. Precisely. That's probably where the connect was made. That that is that's got to be. Do it. you like how I used connect? Yeah, very nice. Um, it all connects. It all connects. Oh my god! If you if you Google mullet, the video will come up. It's on Vimeo. So it's Googleable. It's twenty one minutes and forty eight seconds. Who doesn't have 21 minutes and 48 seconds to watch? Well, I actually, I use Ecosia. Do you know this thing, Ecosia? Everyone should use this. My daughter turned me on to it. It's like Google, but they've saved the planet. It says here 123,618,690 trees have been planted. Oh, it just went to 92, 93, 94. Uh, because of this, uh, because of this search engine, how do you? Ecosia. Every time you acosia something, they'll they'll plant a tree. They plant a tree, I guess. And Sweet Clarence Jesus. gets his wings. Mm-hmm. And Clarence gets his wings. See how I brought it all back to. So does life? so does <laughs> Ionesco. I brought it all back to Clarence. You did it! Hooray! Well, played. Well, played. well, thanks for doing this, Mike. I feel like I've revealed too much. We'll cut out all that stuff.
So it's my understanding we're pretty deep into the show here, and some of you scumbags still haven't given money to KT's kids. Or if you have given money to KT's kids, you haven't given enough money to KT's kids. Look at this extraordinary assemblage of talent that you've had the pleasure of enjoying all evening long. Scott Lucas is playing a mandolin, for Christ's sake. It is time for you to dig deep, deep, deep. And I don't want to hear all this, oh, it's COVID, I don't have no money. Look in your couch. Look for a change in your couch. If you've already looked for a change in your couch, then get a metal detector and look for more change in your couch. The time is now. These kids, they need the money. This is the moment. If it's the holiday season, then it's the time to give. So give to KT's kids right GDF and now. You hear me? Over and out.